According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Take this moment to check your cell phones or any other electronic noise-making devices, your iPods, your uh, Nintendo video games, other things that you amuse yourself with during Bible class. All right. John chapter 10. John chapter 10. The Good Shepherd, which we got an introduction to last week under point one. Uh, we covered some subpoints, I believe A, B, C, D, E. Uh, left off with E and a promise that we would be examining Ezekiel 34 this morning. So, actually, if you'd rather turn there, uh, we'll fix our bearings in uh, John 10 and then we'll get to Ezekiel 34. Before we do any of this, though, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that we are armored up. Humble, prepared to receive truth, shall we pray? Almighty Father, I thank you for the truth of your word and for your faithfulness. We ask for your hand of blessing on our study this morning and the setting aside of distractions. Father, uh, take every thought captive in obedience to Christ Jesus, particularly as we examine the aspects of shepherding, Father, and the area that's very dear to me and area that's very vital for any local assembly. Father, if, uh, if shepherding is, is absent, then uh, the sheep are without a shepherd. And I pray that you would open our eyes to this doctrine, that we might identify the truth of what you've revealed, and that we might appreciate the, uh, the blessings of what you have provided, not only for ourselves, but in the uh, privilege and blessing to be able to train men for the ministry and prepare shepherds uh, to carry on this work uh, in the next generation and, and beyond. So we thank you for that. We thank you for this study in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Looking at the Good Shepherd information. I tell you, this is uh, dear to my heart and I've done more shepherding studies than I can probably shake a stick at and uh, and so forth. But John 10 is, uh, I mean, there's just certain passages of the Bible you turn to when you think about shepherding. You think about John 10, you think about Psalm 23. Just right off the bat, you think about Ezekiel 34. And we're going to hit all of them in the process of this. Uh, and then, obviously, there's Acts 20, there's the pastoral epistles, plenty of other places. Well, John 10 is, I am the good shepherd, and that's what we're dealing with. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. It's like the person going into your house who's uh, got the black mask over his face and he threw a brick through a window at 3 o'clock in the morning and he's sneaking in the back side of the house. Chances are you don't want him there. <laughs> I, I just suspect that that's the case. Uh, if you want him there, if he belongs there, then he can come in the front door with a key or uh, a doorkeeper opens for him and so forth. Well, the reason why, and there is a doorkeeper in this passage. Verse 3, to him the doorkeeper opens. And so without the doorkeeper opening, if he's breaking a window and coming in some other way, it tells you that something nefarious is afoot and uh, that man doesn't need to be there. He is a thief and a robber. That's what last week was all about. Last week was about the, uh, the klepti and the lacedi, the thieves and the robbers. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. He is where he belongs and the, he's entitled to have entrance to that location. To him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. You see, there are more sheep in the pen than actually belong to that shepherd. We'll discuss that this morning. When he puts forth all his own, he goes forth ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice, a stranger they simply will not follow. And we have to introduce all of these are characters in a drama that we want to be very careful with. We don't want to confuse, for instance, the it's more than just the shepherd and the robber at work here. There's the shepherd, there's the thief and robber, there's the doorkeeper, and there's the stranger. Well, who's the stranger? We'll address all of this here this morning. So a stranger they simply will not follow, but they will flee from him because they do not know the voice of the strangers. 
this figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So this is a figure of speech. This is not a parable per se, but it is a figure of speech. And it's important to identify because there are schools of theology out there, entire hermeneutical structures that try to say, well, the whole Bible is just an allegory, a figure of speech. And they interpret based on that, and it's a flawed statement, because here we find out very clearly that there are certain passages of the Bible that are figures of speech, parables, metaphors, and so forth. You want to handle them appropriately, but you just can't take the whole Bible as such and then leave it to your own mystical interpretations. All right, so point one in the outline, Jesus introduces the Good Shepherd Discourse with an introduction to thieves and robbers. And that's what verse six, uh, 1 through 6 is all about. It's an introduction to thieves and robbers. And I decided last week I didn't like the redundancy of terms. So uh, Jesus introduces the Good Shepherd Discourse with an essay of on thieves and robbers. How about that? We'll change our terminology a little bit and avoid the redundancy, either an essay or a discourse on thieves and robbers. The venue for thieves and robbers is the sheepfold. This is an important principle. Um, There are thieves and robbers all over the world, of course, and we're not going to solve that or fix that or keep them from doing what they're doing. But what we have to be on guard against is the thieves and robbers that want to come in here. That's where we must be on the alert, where we must be ready to defend the sheep. In the vocabulary there is an aule, A-U-L-E, number 833, aule. Uh, it has a lot of applications, and typically it's a court in, normally where we find it in the Bible, it's the courts of the temple, the women's court, the court of the Gentiles, uh, the different courts on the temple grounds before you actually get into the holy place. It's a, or if it's in reference to a king's palace, it might be the outer court of a, of a king's palace or Caesar's palace or something like that. Uh, but clearly when it's attached to the palace of the sheep, uh, it's not the palace of the sheep, it's the sheep pen. It's the courtyard of the sheep, as it were. And this is where you take your sheep each night to put them away, to put them behind walls, to give them a secure, fenced-in area where they can sleep, where they are sheltered, and where they uh, you can uh, come back and get them in the morning. And we'll discuss that when we discuss the role of the doorkeeper and what happens each morning as a variety of shepherds come in, not just a single shepherd in this passage. All right. So that's the venue. Secondly, point B, we gave you some vocabulary on kleptes for thief. And uh, remarkably enough, thieves and shepherds have been a feature of Greek literature going all the way back to Homer. And uh, we even took the time last week to read Homer's Iliad in uh, 311, there's the reference, uh, and it was actually a commentary on uh, fog, on the mist that would roll in off the sea, and the fog was a, a real friend of the thieves. The thieves loved the fog because it obscured what they were doing and gave them the cover so to where they could thief, they could uh, accomplish their thievery without being observed, whereas shepherds uh, did not like the fog. Uh, The fog was the enemy of the shepherd because the shepherd wants a clear line of sight. They want high visibility. They want to be able to see what's coming from the uh, farthest distance possible. Anyway, the contrast between shepherds and thieves is not new, not introduced by the New Testament. Uh, It is a common thread in Greek literature for centuries, but the New Testament makes use of it. Jesus makes use of it. And uh, I thought that was interesting. Anyway, a whole lot of New Testament passages on thieves. The ones that struck me the most were the prophetic passages on thievery because the day of the Lord and the second advent of Jesus Christ is going to come like a thief in the night. And so the metaphor, Jesus is not a thief. He is a good shepherd. But when he comes, he will be thief-like in the sense of the unexpected um, sneakiness of it because uh, the adversary is all geared up for the full 1,260 days of the of the Daniel 70th week and yet the time gets cut short and Jesus actually makes his appearance prior to the adversaries being ready for it and that's uh, that's kind of a neat feature of the second advent there are old testament parallels to the kleptes or to the verb klepto uh, and that includes the verb ganav. This first one here is your verb, G-A-N-A-B, ganav. That one's your verb, 1589. And then your noun, ganav. Double your N and change your vocalization on your vowels. Uh, ganav is 1590. That is your noun. And that's the one that you find in the 
Pentateuch all throughout the Old Testament. Thou shalt not steal is part of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not gonav. Beyond the thief is the robber, the highwayman, the bandit, what we would call today the terrorist. Uh, these were murderers that used violence in, uh, in their robbery methodology. And uh, whereas the thief tended to be more by stealth and, and not wanting to hurt people, uh, the robber didn't need to be sneaky. They just needed to kill their victims and, and plunder their, their dead bodies. We did some work on thieves and robbers. When Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross, he was not in between two thieves. He was in between two robbers. That's an important difference. He wasn't in between two klepti. He was in between two lacedi. A klepti would simply be uh, scourged, whipped, maybe have a hand chopped off, something like that. He would be fined. He'd have to repay what he stole. But the lacedi uh, were the highwaymen, the robbers, like in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, and, and they were crucified. They were put to death for their insurrection, for their terrorism, that we would call it today. The Roman Empire got very good at crucifixions. In fact, they would do them thousands at a time. In fact, for the, some of the later rebellions, Masada and Bar Kokhba and some of the other rebellions, they would, they would crucify 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 Jews at a, at a shot. So that, uh, they got very good at it on Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D., however, there were only three of them, and uh, one of which was, in fact, a travesty of justice, but that's the gospel message as we understand it. All right. If you want to do more on thieves and robbers, I recommend R.C. Trench. Um, I, I meant to look it up. The R.C., what it stands for, Cheveno, I know is the middle name, but Roland or Rolando, something like that. Uh, it's a French name, but Trench, um, I think he was French. There are a couple of trenches involved. Uh, one was a Anglican archbishop, and then this fellow here. So, uh, and I get them mixed up. Anyway, trenches, synonyms. Uh, there's only one that did language work on synonyms, and he uh, he breaks that down. I won't take the time to go into that this morning. Point E: the thief's purpose in the fold is to steal, kill, and destroy. In fact, there is no good purpose for him being there. He has uh, his only purposes are destruction: to steal, to kill and to destroy. And uh, so this combines the work of a kleptase and a uh, lastase, uh, the thief and the robber. They're here to kill, steal, and destroy. Klepto is the verb to steal. Thuo is the verb to kill, uh, used to slaughter. Slaughter might be a better word, it's, uh, particularly when it's used of animals uh, to butcher, to slaughter. And then apolumi is to destroy. And that's the destruction that speaks of even a total destruction, even an eternal, ultimate destruction. This is the destruction that we are promised not to have uh, in the future because we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, apolumi, be destroyed eternally in the lake of fire, but have everlasting life. Now, this function of killing and stealing and destroying, this takes us to the concepts of... Uh, Wrong shepherding, selfish shepherding, satanic shepherding that is featured in Ezekiel 34. So this kill, stealing and killing and destroying, the plundering of this is consistent with the woe message that Ezekiel levied, leveled on the faithless shepherds of Israel in Ezekiel 34. So we can gain new ground this morning by turning to Ezekiel 34. Get past Isaiah, Jeremiah. In the Lamentations of Jeremiah, you get to Ezekiel. If you get to Daniel, you've gone too far. Ezekiel's got 48 chapters. Pretty easy book to spot as you're thumbing through your Old Testament. Ezekiel 34. We can take a look at it. And every time I read this passage, I just... I realize that the sadness comes in. We understand the thief that climbs over the wall in the middle of the night while the, maybe the shepherd dozed off or whatever. And he comes over the wall and he's able to swipe some, some uh, sheep and uh, kill some other ones and, and to destroy, to, to um, ruin that sheepfold for future use is, uh, is, is uh, a horrible thing. That's, that's bad enough. But what happens if the shepherd who belongs there, the shepherd to whom the doorkeeper opens, comes in and starts doing the same activities? 
That's even worse. And that's what Ezekiel 34 is highlighting here. So the word of the Lord came to me saying, the word of the Lord came to me saying, remember who's the word? Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the word. And so when you have the word of Jehovah came to me saying, uh, more and more lately, I start to think about this as a pre-incarnation, theophany, Christophany appearance of Jesus Christ. God the Son, in a pre-incarnate Christophany, the word of Yahweh came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? So this is a bad news message. You don't need to learn Hebrew when you just see the word woe. That's bad news. When Jehovah's pronouncing woe, that means you've already crossed a line. This is not a repent or else message. This is, you're already past that stage. This is already into the or else circumstances that woe has been pronounced and that divine wrath is imminent. You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter. Remember, the thief comes to steal, to slaughter, and to destroy. You slaughter. The fat sheep without feeding the flock. So everything is selfish in its orientation here. There is no benefit to the flock. Everything is all take, take, take from the standpoint of these false shepherds or these uh, maladjusted shepherds. They're satanic shepherds is what they are. They are entirely about their personal benefit to the detriment of the flock itself. Now, this, uh, I think sometimes pastors or others have a hard time understanding this because, well, what's wrong with slaughtering a sheep? Aren't you supposed to slaughter sheep? You, you sacrifice sheep and you, uh, you, you, tr you shear the sheep and you make use of the wool and, and the, the sheep should be for human benefit. Yes, the flock should be for human benefit, but not to the detriment of the flock. And the ones that you kill are the ones that you need to kill at the right time in the right circumstances. But there's also other work that has to be done that doesn't benefit you immediately. It benefits the sheep immediately and only benefits you in the long run. And uh, part of that gets neglected here. And that's why the, the message of woe comes in. Now, before I read any of the rest of this, understand he's not talking about literal shepherds with literal sheep at this point. He is fully in a metaphor speaking to human beings for what they're failing to do with respect to their fellow human beings. Okay? Now they don't they didn't have a church age application, so let's understand what he's talking about. What human beings could be in view here as shepherds of Israel? Who who's that? The priesthood would be a prime example. The high priest, all the other priests, the Levites, they would be prime shepherds. Alright? But he doesn't use the term priest, he uses the term shepherd to be able to give a metaphor that actually has a broader application than just simply the priesthood. That's a good first item. Who else might be considered a shepherd of Israel? The political leaders, the king. The king, his sons, all the princes. Not only that, but each of the tribes has their own tribal elders. And each of the tribes with the tribal elders uh, would be considered a prince, a prince of Israel as a tribal prince. But then beyond that, each tribe is broken down into clans. Each clan is broken down into families. You remember, David was of the household of Jesse. And so the household of Jesse would be the family, and he's the, the root of the stem of Jesse there. That's the family division. But between the, above the stem of Jesse there was a clan, the clan of, of uh, Bethlehem Ephrathah was the clan, uh, Bethlehem being the city, Ephrathah being the clan, all right? But then the clan of Ephrathah, which is a pretty minuscule, small little deal there, was a part of the tribe of Judah. So you have the tribe of Judah, the clan of Ephrathah, the family or house of, Day of uh, Jesse, and then beyond that, the, the various sons of Jesse, and that's how that works, okay? It's good to review this occasionally because it's alien to our culture, <laughs> So the, the, the tribal leaders would be among the shepherds. The clan leaders, the family leaders would be among the shepherds. That's right. Um, any prophets that might be uh, lifted up in a particular generation would be considered shepherds of Israel. But the, uh, the king, the political leadership, the religious leadership, they would all be counted. And even when it comes right down to it, 
individual husbands and fathers in a marriage and in a in a personal family would be shepherds. Uh, husbands are expected to shepherd their wives. Parents are expected to shepherd their children. And if that's not being done, a uh, culture is in trouble. A, a community is in trouble. A city is in trouble. A state, a nation, and so forth. And so uh, as I pray for our nation, it's not just simply for the political leadership and the economics and the status of the military and wherever the Dow Jones might be or any of that. What are believers doing as salt and light in our community? Are we growing in grace and knowledge? Are we glorifying Jesus Christ? Because as go the local churches, so go the nation. Now, notice, you eat the fat and clothe yourself with a wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. And so he has no interest in benefiting or tending or even feeding these animals. All he wants is what does he get out of it? What does he get out of it? Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. So there's five different things he has not done. Five areas of negligence. And because of his negligence, sickly, diseased, broken, scattered, and lost, sheep are all in trouble. Five categories of problems that the sheep need the shepherd to deal with. And the shepherd's 0 for 5. That's a bad batting average. <laughs> okay? But with, and here's what he has been doing, with force and severity you have dominated them. In all the models of leadership, this is the, uh, the tyrant model of dictatorial control. And uh, the, the Bible never, never recommends that. <laughs> All right. Whether for a shepherd or for a husband or for any pattern of leadership. In fact, if I can hold my finger there, let me just get a real quick parallel in 1 Peter 5 where it says, uh, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. And then verse 3, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So a pastor that gets full of himself and pride and starts lording it over those allotted to your charge, that's the pastor that, back to Ezekiel 34 then, is with force and severity, you have dominated them. With force and severity, you have dominated them. And this is just a brutal method of, uh, of uh, it's an abusive relationship. And it's like an abusive husband in a marriage. This is an abusive pastor to a congregation. And the pathetic thing is, is there's a lot of congregations that put up with it. They've got like a battered wife syndrome multiplied to a congregation. And I'll probably ought to write a book on battered congregation syndrome and see if I can make some money or something. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> but I bet you it would sell. I bet you I could write a book on battered congregation syndrome and, and uh, go on Oprah and make all kinds of money. There you go. We'll sell the movie rights. And uh, <laughs> don't no, no. not be goofy here. All right, back to the text. The Lord's going to provide for the new construction, but it won't be through such cosmos methodology. All right. So uh, there's the negligence. Five things he hasn't been doing. There's five categories of sheep that are in trouble. And instead, he's busy as the dictator. Verse 5, they were scattered for lack of a shepherd. And what really strikes me there, lack of a shepherd. Well, the fact is they have shepherds, but because the shepherds aren't shepherding, they lack a shepherd. It's not enough that you have a man in the title, a man with an office, a man that's got the uh, position, who's drawing a paycheck. If he's not accomplishing the activity, there are sheep without a shepherd. See, like husbands who don't husband, pastors who don't pastor. And so it's lack of a shepherd. Reason being, they're not shepherding. They've got five aspects of negligence and one aspect of of, uh, satanic dominion. So they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock, 
See, the, the, at the end of the day, it's not even the shepherd's flock. It's God's flock that the shepherd was simply entrusted with. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. See, if the shepherd's not doing the job, who's going to do it? The answer is nobody. He's the one equipped to do it. Others might try, but they're not equipped to do it. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. And this, is, uh, this gets pretty powerful then in verse 8. As I live, declares the Lord God. As I live. Do you know what that is? That is a vow. That is the language of an oath being taken. That is powerful. This is in, in the ancient world, this is, uh, you know, we got cross my heart, hope to die. Uh, dumb stuff like that, right? Stupid stuff. But that stuff that little kids use actually came from an original oath-taking formula. In other words, cross my heart, hope to die. If, if that has any truth behind it, what it means is, is if this statement is not true, kill me. I am placing my life on the veracity of this statement. Right? People just say, I mean, oh, I swear to God. What do you mean by that? Think it through. Because the God of the universe does not take oaths lightly. All right? This is the language of an oath. As I live. Now, keep in mind, how long does God live? Forever. Eternal. Eternity past to eternity future and everything in between. On an eternal scale of infinity, both directions, on infinity, as I live, saith the Lord. Now, this is the God who cannot lie. So the God who cannot lie, whose essence is veracity, the God who cannot lie takes an oath. You think that's powerful? <laughs> Does that get your attention? The God who cannot lie takes an oath. That gets your attention. Anytime the Lord, anytime in the Old Testament, Yahweh takes an oath, that's powerful. And by the way, he does so again, or he does so, the, the most important one he does so is in our covenant promises of salvation. In the sense of and appointing his son as his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. And, uh, and so forth, appointing him as a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The God who cannot lie has undertaken an oath. So we see that here, though, in a passage of wrath and judgment. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my flock has become a prey, my flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says Yahweh Adonai Elohim, the Lord God, because I am against... Actually, this is Adonai Yahweh. This is the doubling up of, of uh, terms there. Very interesting. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from them. I am against the shepherds. God just draws the line and puts himself in an adversarial position to these shepherds. You don't want to be on that other side of the line when God draws the line and says, you're the target, you're the enemy. I am against my shepherds and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. This is consistent with the Alpha and Omega in, Genesis, in Revelation 2 and 3 saying, repent or I will remove your lampstand. He will deal with false shepherds. He will deal with even not just false shepherds, but even true shepherds that are negligent, true shepherds that are fallen short. I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep so the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. All right, so here is the, uh, the rebuke. And so all the activity of um, what you see in terms of verse 3, you eat the fat, clothe yourself with the wool, you slaughter the fat without feeding the flock. That's the thief and the robber from John 10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. That's the impact from John 10. It goes on here in Ezekiel 34. The good news is, of course, 
that when the faith, when the human shepherds are faithless, the good shepherd remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And it says, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. And all the five areas where these guys fell short, Jesus Christ ticks them off and says, okay, I'm going to do this, 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 and this. Because he's the good shepherd. And uh, let's just, it's worth a little bit of extra time here to, to see this in verses 11 and following, because this is what we want to take into John 10 when we get to the good shepherd portion. So behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among the scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them. Let me get on down here. Notice verse 16. I think contains the... Uh, well, look at 15. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. That's two facets of this. The feeding is out there. The rest is in here. That's what the pen is all about, the sheepfold that we talk about in John 10. Feeding is out there. Resting is in here. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, strengthen the sick, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. All right. Anyway, the Lord will be the faithful shepherd. That's point E. The thief's purpose in the fold is to steal, kill, and destroy. This is consistent with the woe message that Ezekiel leveled on the faithless shepherds of Israel. Subpoint F, then. We get introduced to a doorkeeper. In John 10:3, a doorkeeper. A thuroros. Thura is door. Thuroros, a door watcher. Not a very common term. In fact, here, also chapter 18 and Mark 13, 34, the only three places that feature a doorkeeper. Um, there's a similar... No, I think there's another place too. I think there's a doorkeeper in the book of Acts, maybe, when uh, Peter gets out of jail. and I don't remember. Anyway, there's not many applications of the Thuroros. He's not a shepherd. He doesn't lead out. He doesn't take and feed the flock. It's not his responsibility to do so. However, it is his responsibility to provide an assistance service to the shepherd. And that assistance is the nighttime keeping and uh, safeguarding uh, of the sheep and then opening the door for the shepherd in the morning. So the doorkeeper, this is a point F, the doorkeeper opens the door for each shepherd. And it's outlined in John 10, 3 through 6. Vocabulary for doorkeeper is thuroros, T-H-U-R-O-R-O-S. And you got both the O's there. You got the Omicron and the Omega. T-H-U-R-O, that's the long O, R-O-S. First one's long, second one's short, thuroros, number 2377. And these other ones you should be familiar with, um, Mark 13:34. In a parable, he says, "It is like a man away on a journey who, upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert." And uh, this is a neat warning for us in terms of the imminency of the rapture. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep, what I shall say to you all, be on the alert. Now that's a second Advent context with respect to the day of the Lord and the coming. We can draw our own application because our own rapture is also under principles of imminency. Does that make sense? This is not a rapture passage, but the principle of imminency is applicable for us today because of the, the nature of the rapture. And you don't want to be caught asleep when the Lord himself descends with a shout, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. We want to be in fellowship and on the alert and waiting for the master when he gathers us home. I did a lot of guard duty in the army and one story I like to tell on that. It wasn't me. I wish, I wish this could be my story. I, I'm, not, I'm not smart enough to think of these things at the time. But um, 
a fellow soldier of mine was uh, down there on the guard on the in the gate shack on the guard duty, and the sergeant of the guard was going around making his spot checks, his inspections, and so forth, checking on the on the soldiers, making sure they were awake. Well, um, this this MP had had dozed off, and uh, and he woke up hearing the footsteps of the boots of the of the sergeant sneaking up behind him. But he had the presence of mind to keep his eyes closed. He didn't just wake up and go, you know, like this and grab for his rifle and do whatever. He just kept his eyes closed. He was awake but kept his eyes closed. And then the sergeant's reaching in, looking in the window, and starts to open the door. And as the door began to open, uh, this MP I used to know, he, um, he just sat there like this with his eyes closed. And he said, in Jesus' name, amen. And he opened his eyes. And he acted like, oh, no, no, he wasn't asleep. He was just praying, right? Yeah, yeah. How you doing, Sarge? I'm, I'm fine, you know? Anyway, um, I don't think the sergeant fell for it, but he let it slide because he was pretty impressed on the creativity of the, uh, of the excuse, maybe. I don't know. But anyway, so, yeah, you don't want to be asleep. You don't want to be caught asleep when you're supposed to be on guard duty. Uh, in the Roman Empire, you could be put to death for that. That's... Uh, the issue there. So when they bribe the guards at the tomb of Jesus to say, "Oh, well, tell them you're asleep, and we'll uh, we'll, we'll we'll fix things, so you'll be okay," you know. Yeah, right. All right. Back to John 10. Then the doorkeeper, his responsibility. He's not a shepherd, but he he does hold a position of trust. He works with the shepherds, and he has a responsibility through the night. In fact, you might even think of this as an assistance type ministry by which. He is able to provide for the shepherds where they can get some rest and sleep themselves. And so it says, to him, the doorkeeper opens. Who's the him? Well, the shepherd of the sheep from verse two. He who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. And he walks up to the door and it's not an automatic, you know, H-E-B kind of door. Uh, It's actually a door that the doorkeeper has to open to let the let the shepherd in. So to him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. So the doorkeeper's responsibility is to open the door for each shepherd. And the shepherd actually doesn't go, doesn't enter into the sheepfold. With the, with the open door, he stands at the doorway just outside the sheepfold and calls out by name. And then the sheep come to him and he's able to lead them forth. That's how this, in fact, they still practice the same thing today in uh, such places where these things happen. <laughs> All right. Not in Austin, Texas, but in the Middle East, in cultures where shepherding is still a way of life. All right, Arabian, uh, Bedouin cultures and societies and, and so forth. That stuff still happens on planet Earth today. Now, each shepherd, keep in mind, each shepherd has personal ownership over certain sheep, but not others. This is important to recognize. Each shepherd, the doorkeeper watches over all of them just through the night inside the pen. And his responsibility, he doesn't do much for the sheep. In fact, he just sits there and watches for the wolves and and keeps them in the pen, keeps them from going anywhere. He's on guard against uh, wolves, lions, bears, and uh, uh, thieves, human thieves that might come in to take the flock. Each shepherd has personal ownership over certain sheep, but not others. Notice the terminology. He calls his own sheep. They're his own. It's a possessive terminology, see. And the uh, same thing holds true in, in local churches. Same thing holds true in, in, uh, in, with pastors and congregations. There is a personal ownership. Uh, Paul speaks of it on, on a number of occasions. He speaks of the godly pride that he has, even for the Corinthians. A bunch of stiff-necked knuckleheads. But Paul said, I love you guys. God knows I love you guys. That's the shepherd heart that has the personal Ownership. It's not a hireling. It's not somebody that's just in it for the money who doesn't care for the sheep. But he has a personal ownership of the sheep. Even if they're not his sheep, he still has the attitude of personal ownership as if they were his own. Such as is in the case here, because ultimately the sheep belong to God, but the shepherd has a sense of personal ownership. Certain sheep, but not others. So he puts forth, he calls his own sheep. And then it says in verse 4, he puts forth all his own. 
Now, by calling his own and then putting forth all his own, meaning uh, he doesn't just they don't just hang out in the pen 24 seven. They go into the pen at night to sleep. But in the morning, they're back out again in the in the in the pasturage. They're back out again walking. It's good exercise. It's good uh, to feed them and all the rest. They can't sit there in a pen around the clock and eat and sleep and and procreate and all the things they're doing in the pen. You've got to get them out. You walk them, you stretch them, you get their exercise, you feed them, you water them, keep them in one spot too long, and they'll eat the thing to, to death. All right, they'll denude the uh, foliage of the, of the area. All right, I just like using the word denude in a Bible study. It makes me seem scholarly. All right. So you got the idea. The pen is at nighttime, right? Bedtime for the sheep. And then you get them out in the morning. Now, here's the thing, though. One pen can hold how many flocks? Multiple flocks. A dozen or more. Who knows? Depending on how the dimensions of the pen and the number of sheep involved in, in that. But by pooling the, uh, the resources there, it's like a, you know, a shepherd co-op or whatever. You get eight shepherds. They all bring their sheep in there at night. One doorkeeper and, and maybe a partner, assistant or whatever, they, they stay awake during the night watching for the wolves, watching for uh, animals or human uh, bandits and whatnot. And uh, they stay awake during the night and shepherds get to go home to their wives and their families and whatever, right? Family life. Then the morning, the, the different shepherds show up and take their sheep out and then the doorkeeper is off for the day. He just has to show up at sundown for when the shepherds start coming back with their... So he goes home and sleeps and has time with his family and however else that works. In some cases, the doorkeeper is actually the son of the shepherd and you use your children for that and different aspects there. All right. Now, but see, here's the thing. If you've got multiple flocks, and sheep can do this. They do this to, to this very day. Multiple flocks, eight flocks inside this pen. The doorkeeper opens the door and the sheep hear the door opening. Oh, door's opening. Is it time to go? And then the voice calling them by name. And the sheep, if they belong to that shepherd, go to the door and follow the shepherd out. The sheep that don't belong to that shepherd, they're one of the other seven flocks waiting for their guy to show up. They, to them, that's the voice of a stranger. And they will not follow the voice of a stranger. They, they flee. In other words, they go to the back end of the pen, away from the door, and they're moving out of the way, away from the door, so the, the flock that belongs to this guy actually start coming towards the door. They sort themselves out. They know the voice of their shepherd. That's the design function of sheep. God created them that way. And I, and I love the fact that it holds true, indeed, for um, believers in a local church who know the voice of their shepherd. If they're spiritually minded, they know the voice of their shepherd. And they can, and it just becomes obvious, wow, this is where we need to be. This is where I'm going to get fed. This is, this is where I belong. That's the voice of my shepherd. See, other people, they, they come in, they visit a place, they're checking off, uh, you know, requirements. Is there a nursery? Is there a bowling alley? Is there a mom's night out? Is there a, you know, they've got all this checklist of stuff they want in a church. They're shopping for a church like they're shopping for uh, health insurance or, or uh, you know, some kind of apartment deal. All right. Let's try to see what the scriptures have to say about shepherds and flocks and understand. Because to me, this is the essence of, you know, the, years ago, the colonel taught right pastor teacher, right congregation kind of thing. What it really is, is not a pastor teacher who's given sovereignty over a, a neighborhood or a locality. But what it is, it's sheep that have been designed and attuned to the voice of the shepherd. And that's ultimately what it's about. All right, so there's personal ownership. His own sheep, he calls them out in verse 3, and then he puts them forth in verse 4. And in putting them forth, though, it's not a cattle drive. He's not leading from behind and whipping them. He goes ahead of them, and he leads them from the front. That's the nature of sheep. Secondly, point two, each shepherd has personal names for each individual sheep. don't know if you spotted that or not. I read it already out of verse 3. When he calls his own sheep, he calls them out by name. By name. He knows not just that he, you know, he's, gonna, he's got 55 sheep he's responsible for today. And, you know, or however many he's got in his flock. Starts counting them. One, two, three, four. And as long as he gets 55, he doesn't care which ones they are. Just, you know, so... <laughs> 
If I leave with 55, come back with 55, you know, big deal. There you go. No, that's not what it is. He knows each and every one of them individually by name. So it's not just a head count. It's not just, uh, you know, coming back with the same number you went out with, right? We talk about that with our Boy Scout campouts. You know, we went, we went out last weekend with the Scouts. We had 14 going out, had 14 coming back. So, okay, we're good to go. Parents are happy with the Boy Scout troop. We think they were the same 14 we went out with, right? Theoretically, they're the same 14 you come back with. Well, no, you better know your sheep. You better know who they are. See, this is the thing. Knowing your sheep by name is a prerequisite for shepherding. If you do not know your sheep's name, you're not shepherding. I'm convinced of that. And these, uh, I'm not judging. I'm not uh, telling other pastors what they need to do in their churches. But it boggles my mind. And they'll have to answer for that to Jesus Christ. How are they going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ and give an account? We're told they're going to. They're accountable. They're going to give an account. And Jesus Christ will say, tell me how you shepherd, shepherded um, Joe Blow or whoever, you know, Melchizedek McGillicuddy. And the pastor's going to say, uh, never heard of him. Who was that? He was in your church. He, uh, he came about eight times a year, sat in the 44th row in the left-hand wing of whatever auditorium. Oh, okay, I, I never really met him. And you didn't shepherd him, did you? I'm not going to answer to Jesus Christ for failing to shepherd. In any event, other, other pastors do what they do, and they pastor churches of thousands and thousands of people. But I would tell you that they're not shepherding because they don't know the voice. They don't know the names of their sheep, and their sheep don't know their shepherd's voice. All right. Shepherd has personal names for each individual sheep. And it's interesting. Now, who names the sheep? Yeah, yeah. Adam named the animals, right? <laughs> that was kind of fun. You know, and maybe they're your own personal names. Maybe the sheep don't know what their names are. That's all right. All right, as long as you know what the sheep's name is. Now, the sheep has to know their name because you call them by name. And you say, come here, knucklehead. The knucklehead knows that's him. And he comes and follows the voice of his shepherd. All right. It's also important to know them by name means if one turns up missing, not only do you know that one's missing, hey, I've got 54 instead of 55, I'm missing one. Well, which one am I missing? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm missing uh, Fred. You know, you know who he is. You know what he looks like. You know everything about him. All right, point three. Sheep from multiple flocks can be penned together at night. Sheep from multiple flocks can be penned together at night, but will self-segregate in the morning as each shepherd leads them out, as he sends them forth. Sheep from multiple flocks can be penned together at night, but will self-segregate in the morning as each shepherd leads them out. And that's the introduction to the stranger. The stranger, they simply will not follow. Now, who's the stranger? He's not a thief. He's not a robber. He's not somebody sneaking in at night. He is somebody for whom the doorkeeper has, in fact, opened the door. So he has an open door opportunity, but only for his sheep. He is a shepherd of different sheep. And so a stranger is a shepherd of a different flock. That's the stranger here in this context. A stranger that simply will not follow, but will flee from him. Because they do not know the voice of strangers. They're not thieves, they're not robbers, but they are shepherds of different flock. See, And so um, that's the, the metaphor here as, as it's in action. It's interesting, he says, uh, later on when we get to the, the door aspect, and he says in verse 8, All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. It's interesting because when he talks about himself as being the door and himself as being the good shepherd, he contrasts himself with others that have preceded him. Pharisees, Sadducees, false teachers, false Christs, uh, false prophets, others that try to make a big name for themselves. But the problem was they came without uh, understanding the application of the door, and that's what we'll deal with in our next point of study. All right, so sheep from multiple flocks. And it's a... 
Again, it's a practice that still happens today. All right, let's look at the door. Point two, then, I am the door. We've got four main points in this, in this chapter or in this episode. It's not the whole chapter, but this episode takes us down through verse 21, so it's half the chapter. And four points of study. The first one is the thieves and robbers. The second one is the door. third one is the good shepherd. Point four, we'll look at the, uh, the schizo Jewish leaders here. So point two, I am the door. Point two in the outline, I am the door. Of all the I am messages, this is the one that's least known. Because it's so connected to the good shepherd. Everybody's in a hurry to get to the good shepherd portion. That they overlook the I am the door message in this. They understand I am the light of the world. I am the bread of heaven. I am the good shepherd. Those are the well-known I am messages. I am the resurrection and the life from John 11. I am the way, the truth, and the life from John 14. I am the vine in John 15. There's a lot of I am messages in John. But this is the one that's least known. I am the door. Let's look at it. Verses 7 and following. So, I mean, if, if the chapter ended at verse 6, we'd have a pretty good message right there, right? You've got, you know, um, the shepherd versus robbers, and the doorkeeper opens, and the, they know his voice. They don't know the voice of strangers and, and all of that. That itself is a wonderful message. And you expect for him, based on that message, to immediately follow it up with, I am the good shepherd. But before he gets to that, he says, you want to know something? Let me tell you about that door. The door that the doorkeeper opens. I am the door. And he wants to stress that first, and then he can discuss shepherding. Door comes first. And that's, that's a point of, uh, I think it's, it's critical to this chapter. I am the door. All right? I am the door. Let me back up. Let me just read this here. Uh, verse 7, Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Now, we've got to be careful with this because people see the word saved and then they see the phrase in and out. And what do you think they do with that, right? They go, oh, ooh, we can lose our salvation. Okay? But be careful. Um, understand what I am the door is about. So uh, if anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The abundant life is the in and out life through the door. The abundant life is the in and out life through the door, which is Jesus Christ. You want to understand what the abundant life is? That means you go through Christ to find your rest, and you go through Christ to find your food, your water, your exercise, your daily living. Both directions. You're going through Christ both ways. Going in, you're going through Christ. Going out, you're going through Christ. You're occupying with Christ for your rest, the faith rest life. You're occupying with Christ for your work, your daily walk. Your daily walk includes food, water, exercise. So I am the door. And this is unique. Jesus' I am the door message is the first to reference previous messianic claimants. It is the first to reference previous messianic claimants, all who came before me. What's he talking about when he says all who came before me were thieves and robbers? Jesus, I am the door message is the first to reference previous messianic claimants. We're going to discuss this because this era of Israel's history was one where the expectations were high. The uh, understanding of the timeline in Daniel uh, was, was on everybody's mind. They saw the progression from Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome. They knew where they were in the timetable God set. They knew that 70 weeks were decreed from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. 
They knew that the decree had been issued by Darius. They knew that Jerusalem had been rebuilt. They knew that the timetable was was ticking. And they knew that 69 weeks were upon them. And they had an earnest, earnest expectation of the kingdom. It was on everybody's mind. Are you the Christ? Are you the coming one? You see that eagerness on the part of the Pharisees when John the Baptist first comes on the scene. Is this it? Because the timing was given. The fullness of the times as it's described there. And, and everything, Daniel was a very popular, so, so popular was it that a lot of fraudulent apocryphal books got written. Apocalyptic literature became a genre of its own as religious-minded people started writing these, these things that aren't biblical, but they were expressions of excitement for the coming kingdom. See? And so you got the book of Enoch, and you've got uh, all these other apocryphal books of this day. It was on everybody's mind. And people stood up with claims to be the deliverer. Everybody was all excited. They said, hey, follow me. And uh, we'll throw off the bonds of Rome and we'll enter into the kingdom. We'll bring in the kingdom through human effort. And uh, they all fell flat. We're going to talk about who some of these were. And uh, we know historically some of them. We know biblically others of them. But we also know the historical record tells us that um, there were multiple. Josephus says there were multiple efforts during this period of time. Uh, after the death of Herod from 4 B.C. onward, there were multiple characters stepping up saying, follow me to glory. All right? We just don't know some of their names. Um, other names we know. And then there's confusion because in some cases, there were six of them all named Simon at different times. There were four Judases. Uh, there were a bunch of characters. There's a Thutis that gets uh, it's mentioned in the book of Acts. And then Josephus mentions a Thutis. And... Um, some of the skeptics think that uh, that because of the two mentions of Thutis that Luke was uh, somehow wrong on his history. It, it's interesting. The unbelievers hold uh, they they hold up Josephus as if he's an unquestionable authority, and then they look at Luke and they say, "Oh, Luke got his history wrong." You know, well, wait a minute. Luke was God-breathed and inspired. Josephus, we know, made dozens of mistakes. Josephus was a pretty sloppy historian. Um, well, he was a Pharisee and he was a general. He was not an occupa- He was not a historian by profession, and he was writing the history of the Jews to a Roman audience. He got he got a fair number of details wrong. Josephus is pretty flawed in in some respects. So, you know, we'll talk about that this morning. Uh, not this morning because we're already eleven o'clock at the top of the hour. We'll. Uh, We'll talk about these previous claimants because under point B, I'm going to introduce you to Thutis and Judas and uh, the folks that Gamaliel talks about in Acts chapter 5. But all who came before me, all who came before me, they were claimants to the, to the uh, kingship of Israel prior to Jesus Christ. And what's remarkable is Jesus Christ, although he was entitled to the throne, did not make a claim to the throne. He presented himself as the uh, as the Lamb of God. He was entitled to the throne, but never pressed his claim for it. Everybody that came before him made a claim for the throne and had no interest in being the Lamb of God and certainly had no interest in proclaiming a door message, the door message that illustrates the reality of a priesthood in Christ. No one that came before him had any clue about the door. Okay? They might have had clues on shepherding from Ezekiel 34, Psalm 23, Psalm 119. Other, they could have had some shepherding clues from uh, the Old Testament. But this, I am the door, <laughs> they had no clue on that. And when Jesus Christ reveals us, I am the door and all who came before me were thieves and robbers, uh, this was powerful. And and I want to be able to communicate that next week. So um, hold your thought there. We'll come back next week and deal with that. We'll talk about those who came before and then a considerable number that have come after. There's actually uh, one guy, um, oh, an English guy who wrote in the 1800s. He, can't think of his name now, he uh, he chronicled 64 false Christs in the after Jesus, after Jesus Christ in Jewish history, in world history. 64 false Christs from Bar Kokhba and, and on. 
that claimed to be the Christ that, that were proven to be false Christ. Anyway, um, so 64 that that historian marked. And, uh, of course, there's one big one coming up still who's going to claim to be the Christ and he's going to sweep the whole world away into his, into his lies. But there were those who came before Jesus also claiming to be the son of David entitled to the throne. And uh, we'll address that. All right. Thank you, Father, for this day, for our time together. And if you delay long enough, Father, we're anticipating a, a continuation of this study next week. We ask for your faithfulness to God and direct us. We thank you for what you've blessed us with today in terms of the doorkeeper and in terms of the shepherding responsibilities. I thank you, Father, that we have a training ministry here that's focusing on shepherding. We want to uh, equip these men. Of course, we're teaching them Greek. Of course, we're teaching Hebrew. Absolutely, we're teaching systematic theology. But we can teach all of that. If we fail to develop shepherds, Father, then we're not preparing men for the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray that we will have that as our focus. I thank you that our pending ordination coming up this November is not just uh, ordaining a man that's got language and theology tools, but um, a man with the heart of a shepherd that would lay down his life for the sheep. And I thank you for that. For this passage and for all the truth of your word, Father, um, make it real to us in our thinking that we can make application to the glory of our Savior. And I thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen.